and the rocks and debris sort of start clearing and the, the sky comes out and I get up on my elbows and I sort of look around and then I realize what's happened. I can see the blast crater next to me. I can see bits of debris of my metal detector and my rifle and my kit all over the ground and I can see my, my legs just gushing blood and they're, they're missing. So like gone. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Today's guest worked in the Australian Army for six years as a combat engineer and was serving in Afghanistan when he stepped on an IED. Seriously injured, having lost both of his legs but still conscious, he was stretched to a helicopter. Fearing that he would die, he joked that he planned to become a Paralympian. Part of his rehab, he took up kayaking and it gave him a new sense of purpose. Within four years of his injury, he won gold at Rio 2016 Paralympic Games and is now a 10-time world champion. He smashed it at Tokyo Paralympics and brought home two more gold for Australia. Episode 59, Curtis McGrath. Welcome to One Moment, Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've, um, well, congrats on your new book, Blood, Sweat and Steel. What prompted that? Yeah, I've um, often... Uh, you know, I get to tell my story quite a bit, um, but I feel like I only just scratched the surface. And I yeah. have been asked a fair few times to do a, a book, and I just wanted to wait. You know, I'm, I'm still fairly young, so I felt like I had more story to write. And and uh, yeah, I am still young, but um, I just felt like there was a, a good enough amount there to, to write and have a good ending as well. So yeah. How old? You're saying young. How old are you actually? I'm now? 33. Jeez, Curtis, you've packed a lot into the 33 <laughs> years. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose the journey really sort of began with you when you joined the Army at the age of 18. What prompted you to join? Um, so a lot of my friends were heading off to university after school and I wasn't all that much of a academic uh, or very studious in, in my school time. So I really enjoyed the outdoors and the adventure and exploring new things and um, saw the Army as an opportunity to do uh, all that. And, uh, yeah, so I, I decided that I'd come over and move over from New Zealand to, to Australia and, and join um, or attempt to join as a, a, an aircraft technician. But at the time, the um, the aircraft, the Army recruiters were not uh, recruiting that role. So I had to either wait uh, 12 months or 18 months or uh, choose a different role. So um, that's what I did. Why did you not join the New Zealand Army? Um, there was a few different things. I, I, firstly, I'm a dual citizenship, so I had the option there. Yeah. Um, and there was a, a number of, uh, to be an aircraft technician on helicopters, which is what I was sort of targeting to do, um, I had to do Air Force and do aeroplanes first, and I wasn't really mm -hmm. interested in that. 
Yeah. Um, so I had the opportunity to come over and, and like join straight away and, and direct straight into helicopters, which is what I sort of wanted to do. But, um, you know, as, as life plays out, we don't always get what we want and have to choose different things. But, but also, you know, Australia is a bigger country. It's got more equipment. It's got more advanced equipment. It's um, going more places and, and being more influential in, in the global sort of capacity. So there's more opportunity for deployments. And the pay is a little bit better too, so I can't really ignore that. So when you signed up with a recruiter, you actually got to choose, I want to be a combat engineer as an alternative yeah. to doing the aircraft. Yeah, so you do a range of different tests. You Obviously, your physicals, your academic, um, um, your aptitude. And because I was doing a sort of an engineering one, you do this, this special sort of engineering a test and it's not overly difficult it's just like if this cog turns this way which cog does b turn or or, or z turn type thing and you sort of look at it all and then figure it out you get a sort of an aptitude based off that and um yeah and i had everything i needed to do and um yeah but then there's sort of a list of, of jobs that they think you're appropriate for um based on those results obviously a psych screening as well was involved so yeah it's just a a big sort of employment test and, and you get a, a, a few different jobs pop out to, to you. So you chose combat engineer? Yeah, it was, it was on, it was on the list and I sort of inquired about it. Like, what was that? You know, where, where, where do you get deployed? Like what sort of jobs yeah. do you do? What involvement it is? Um, it, it's one of the combat cores. So that means um, it, it is one of the, I think it's four or five so there's obviously infantry cavalry which is like tanks and armor um artillery um and, and combat engineering through through four or five of them um and they're sort of the the crux of the army and then everything else supports them um in order to do you know the functional role of, of sort of conventional uh warfare which is obviously a thing of the past in our sort of environment and um it it, it you know it inter interested me um, got to you know do a lot of different things. It was a very very what what I think what um, interested me was it's so it's such a broad role. So it can be anything from purifying water to disarming bombs to building bridges to you know building medical centres. It was you know, there's all these different things that we'd do. So um, and it was all within one one under one umbrella, which was pretty cool. That's in, I would have thought that the bomb disposal would have been in a separate area. <laughs> It is, but it's under the umbrella of combat engineering. So okay. there's there's obviously uh, many different roles. There's plant operators, there's um, carpenters, there's you know plumbers, um, there's water purification, there's um, bridging, uh, there's dive specialists within uh, the army as well, and they're under the in engineer. And that is you know all of those, and, and obviously bomb disposal and explosives as well, they're all under the same umbrella. So it's a very big one. And there's even drafting as well and, and maps and all that sort of thing. So it's a very big, big, big core. Yeah. How, you? I mean, you joined up in 2006. So you knew that you were going into a, as a combat engineer role, mm -hmm. as you've described it. You knew that you were probably going to be dis, uh, deployed to um, the Middle East and, and a war zone. But you, it took you a little while to get there, didn't it? So what was the path to sort of getting over to to yeah. Afghanistan? Because you went from combat engineer, which from a layman not understanding the military, I would think that you're building stuff. You've now explained yeah. to me that it's a, a lot broader than that. And yeah. then you ended up in Afghanistan bloody looking for IEDs, which is terrifying. So yeah, what yeah. was the journey sort of to so, get there? 
Yeah, so the, the official role of a combat engineer is to provide mobility and deny mobility. So all of those things that I just explained before, that all encompasses into that one sort of phrase. Um, so for the Middle East, the combat engineer's role is search and and that's searching for the IED. So that's providing that mobility. So allowing you know the freedom of movement for the troops and, and your, your supported coalition forces and obviously the people of um, Afghanistan too. So... Um, Yes, that, that's what I was you know, going to do there. Um, but as I as you pointed out, like it did take a long time. You know, I was put in this troop and did this role and, and went over to Malaysia and did some jungle training and then come back and then was deployed to East Timor where we were building medical centres and water tanks and road and, and helping you know, base services and things like that. So very... Um, broad sort of thing but very humanitarian then we went to then i went to um indonesia and helped purify water after an earthquake there uh similar to what's happening in, in tonga at the moment um all those sort of things are, are like providing services but also helping the capability of of um those places and and ourselves as well and then the war, the warlike or the conflict um, deployments were always happening, but the 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 reason why it took me so long is there's a rotational sort of system within the military that all the different units and, and troops within those units have like a rotation, so they go offline and online and ready uh, return to fight or whatever it's called, um, where they sort of refit and and get everything ready. Um, and then usually you go online and then offline. And so when you're online, you've got an opportunity to get deployed to wherever. And sometimes you get selected and sometimes you don't. Obviously, um, with uh, the, the, the Indonesian deployment, that happened really fast. So they would just need a lot of guys on, on deck to, and to help out. Um, and that was I was just lucky to be there. But for Afghanistan and the Middle East, there's a lot of tests and a lot of training that is required um, in order to, to get approved. Um, so there's a certification process for an engineer. Um, we were one of the few um, uh, troops and, and sort of, um, yes, one of the few troops that actually have to be certified to go because how, how dangerous and how critical our role um, in Afghanistan to be, you know, of, of the highest um, sort of you know, trained troops. So... There, there was a bit of a process there and that whole process can take like 11 to 12 months just to be certified and that's just expanding on what you've learnt already in your military time so um yes yeah, so there's a lot a lot to learn so you actively said i want to go searching for ieds to get over there um it's all all part of like i was saying before there's a lot of different roles and we yeah. do a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit right. of that and a little bit of this and then when they go oh you're heading over to Afghanistan, you're going to be doing a lot of this. So we start focusing on it. And oh, then you okay. start to realize that, oh, yeah, okay. You, you do have a basic understanding, but there's so much more to it. it, it is, you know, it's a very complex and dynamic and there's no front line there. It's, it's all around you. That, that's a complexity that, you know, not, is not unique to Afghanistan, but it is certainly unique to the situation of me not, never being there before and, and never, mm. never being in that um, yeah, environment. The way that I read um, your bio was as if they needed someone to go over and search for IEDs. So that was you put your hand up, and then that was your main role. Well, yeah, you can you can say yes or no to the, to the deployment, and and that's you understand that there is it is incredibly dangerous, yeah. and that is um, 
one of the roles in which terrifying yeah i've had a few guys that you know in the the sas and they said they'd much rather charge machine guns than search for IEDs. so if that's any indication of the danger it's it is a bit uh like like you said it's terrifying at the same time exhilarating um it's yeah all the all the rest so it's it is a a unique role to, to do and i think um a lot of people don't quite understand that a combat engineer in Afghanistan is the front line. There's no one in front of them. We're the ones searching, stepping on the ground first, and we're usually the ones that are getting shot at first because, you know, we're looking at the ground and, and trying to search ahead of everyone else. Well, from the documentaries that I've seen, it's literally people on foot with a metal detector. Is that the role? 100%, yeah. Yeah, oh and yeah, so that that's the basics of it. Um, obviously, we're waving a metal detector across the ground trying to find hopefully a metal signature but it could be a coke can or it could be a, a expended shell casing from a, a bullet or it could be a nail or it could be you know someone's lost earring not likely but you know all that sort of stuff. or it could be a buried russian tank you, you don't know what it is so there's and the varying degrees of of the the dangers and the the threat the threat picture which we get from our intel and what our commanders give us and then breaking that down from from there on, it's it's sort of a, a more of a like I was saying, it's very complex and there's lots going on around you. You could be walking through a village and there's no one there, but usually there's someone there, and that creates a little bit of a an interesting situation where the danger and the threat's gone up. But if there's people everywhere, generally it's a bit safer and um, there's there's not too much going on. Did you tell your family this was your role before you went over? Uh, not necessarily. I told them a very brief and very basic uh, description of what I was doing. I think um, my wife, um, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now uh, knew, but I was very sort of vague on the extent of the dangers in which I'd be in um, to my family. So what did you tell them? I'll just be sitting in, you know, somewhere safe. Um yeah, you, know, you know, we're searching for, for mines and stuff like that, but it was, you know, very um, not not easy. It was, it was you know, very controlled and all that sort of thing. So yeah. I don't think I was very uh, descriptive. I, and I just sort of cut it short. <laughs> yeah, didn't, didn't allow them to elaborate or didn't allow myself to elaborate. When did you actually get deployed over there? What year? It was 2012, so June okay. 6, 2012, which is... Uh, sorry, June twelfth. I uh, was exactly six years to the day that I deployed into the uh, to, in, that I enlisted. So, um, yeah. Talk me through what a usual day would entail, and then talk me through the events of the twenty third of August, which is the day you actually stepped on the IED. Yeah, yeah. So an average day, you, know, you get up quite early. Say if we're going on patrol, say that would be an average day. Um, we're going out on patrol. We get up very early, um, probably around four o'clock before the sun comes up. We sort of muster in a sort of a an area. Um, we get you know do all the checks, have breakfast, um, and make sure everyone's ready and got every stuff. And obviously all the vehicles that are within that. And then we'd roll out into the area, and then. We'd always be the first or first or second vehicle. You, usually you go up with two teams, especially yeah. if it's a big convoy, um, two engineer teams, I should say. Um, we're the first or second. Most of the time we were first just because that was our specialty. Our sort of route um, clearance was our, our sort of our section specialty. Um, but often we'd get attached to a, a clearance, which would be a different type of patrol. But I won't get into the details there, but 
you'd roll out and then you get to your location where you'd think there'd be an ID. So you, un you get out of the vehicle, uh, you sort of do a check around the vehicle, then you sort of break down into your, your search team and then you start searching forward. Um, and depending on the threat picture or, you know, the intelligence in the area, um, obviously there's a bit of spider sense going on. Sometimes mm. you get a bit of feeling that there's something up or, or not, um, you might get my confidence or, and don't, don't confuse me with confidence and complacency. Um, mm. you know, you, you get an understanding of where you are, what's happening around you. Um, and you know, it's very, very rare that complacency steps in. Was it as, as you expected? Obviously, you trained to go over there. Was it as you expected it, or was it you sort of step foot and go, "This is really different to what I expected it to be"? Um, in a way, yeah, because all the while we're training here in Australia, pre-deployment training, we're always training for the worst case scenario. We're always yeah. training for you know scenarios in which we need our skills all the time and and all of to the extreme. Like it wasn't just. Um, you know, your mundane, like, you know, we, we did, we did two or three trips um, in, in a week, which is a lot um, out to the same base and we'd have no problems. And that, yeah. that was the basic day, you know, we would, you know, you do a lot of searching and do a lot of kilometers in that time comparatively to what, what we usually, usually do if there's something wrong. But in Australia, when we're trained, we're just so like intensely focused on the worst case scenarios to make sure that we're good when those things do happen. Um, I had a, when I had a conversation with Daniel Kieran, um, he was saying it was the little things like you'd sweat so much, like a uniform would become stiff with sweat, mm -hmm. yeah. like rigid. And I, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um, Dan, Dan was over um, a, a bit before me, and, and we yeah. had newer uniforms when I deployed. Um, so we had like these very like sort of moisture wicking shirts that would go under our body armor so they wouldn't wouldn't necessarily get that stiff but i have been obviously in east timor and jungle in malaysia and that was all like yeah, it's like cardboard it was yeah pretty yeah. horrible um that and then the lack of um sometimes when you're on a foot patrol you didn't have enough uh, room in your bag for your kit and your food so you'd have to sort of not eat as much as you might have one meal a day type thing rather how than, heavy are your packs that you're carrying uh on a foot patrol i'd say probably 30 kilos maybe okay maybe maybe a little bit less um probably a little bit less because all of our kit is on our body as on our body armor as well so um but then we've got to carry like radios and special uh, electronic countermeasure devices and then our explosives and spare batteries for radios and yeah there's there's a lot of stuff uh, that we have to carry so um yeah the breakdown of a day was was fairly monotonous um you know you head out to the patrol area do your patrol come back see nothing do nothing uh, or not do nothing you see nothing and nothing happens you know you shot out or anything like that and that sort of gave us this maybe maybe a little bit of a false sense of security like it, it seemed like a, a safe place like yeah we were wearing all this body armor and had all this overprotection of vehicles and air support and all that sort of thing and drones that were buzzing around above us just watching and but like nothing ever happened like we we got a little bit of um radio chatter from insurgents that could see us but that was it like that 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 was the the extent of our situation um but then in on in august we got wind of a, a very large clearance operation that we were going to be involved with in a remote corner of the province of Ruizgan. And uh, we were going to be tasked to reestablish 
a checkpoint. And, and what I mean by reestablish is the insurgents had sort of pushed the police and the Afghan forces out of that area and, and sort of had their way with it. So they'd pushed over all the defensive measures. They'd laid a lot of IEDs and no, no one really wanted to go back in there. So they, they tasked us with, um, we had, you know, the equipment, we had all the um, skills and, and this sort of required sort of resources in order to reestablish that checkpoint because it was strategically important sort of into two intersections, two valley intersections leading into different provinces. So, and the, the insurgents were using it to come in and out of Uruzgan. So um, it, it needed um, to be there. And uh, so that was our job and it was going to be a, meant to be a five-day patrol, go up there on the first day, get on the checkpoint, second day, search it all in, and then third day, um, and, uh, implement the security forces. So we had Afghans always working with us. We were there as a mentor uh, to them. So they were working in conjunction with us. So when, when we were there, we were going on patrol with them, and they were leading patrols, and we were leading patrols. So it was a very balanced sort of, not, well, I wouldn't say balanced, but a very sort of mutual um, you know, understanding of we're doing this and you guys are doing this, or so we're coming with you. And yeah. How concerned were you working with them? Because... My conversation with Dan was it was actually, and if the listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to it. He's incredible. And it was, uh, he actually was awarded Australia's highest um, military honour. Um, and we go into the event that, that resulted in that. But he was saying that um, the ambush that he was in actually was the Afghans that he was working with. It was them being Taliban. Yeah, yeah. So we, I never had a situation um, personally uh, where we were dealing with um, infiltration of the Afghan forces from the, the, the insurgents or the Taliban at the time. Um, and it wasn't something that was on my mind at all. Um, we had been around the troops that we were working with quite a bit. Um, so probably for the last... Um, what would it be? Probably for the last month and... and you know, that's not that long, but at the same time, it's sort of long enough for you to watch and see how they would, you know, react and things like that. Obviously, the the biggest problem there was the language language barrier. So mm. you know, we we couldn't understand them. They really couldn't understand us very well. Only like the the commanders would have a basic understanding of English, very basic. I'm saying, we'd have to use interpreters for everything. So that was really tricky in order to sort of teach them. Um, but you know, we were trying to lead by example and, and, and teach by example and show them that, you know, you have to be safe. You have to search when you walk somewhere that you haven't been before. And, and that's just the way it was or something, you know, that, that, that looked like a, a point where an ID could be. And they just sort of fobbed that off. They got complacent. That it looked like they were complacent. It wasn't the fact that they, they, um, weren't skilled enough it's just the fact that they just had enough you know I almost felt like they just couldn't be bothered being there they, they didn't want anything to do with the the place anymore and um i must sort of point out that the the afghan forces that we're working with weren't from southern afghanistan they were from northern afghanistan um so it was very why does that make a difference Culturally, they're different. So they, they have different, a lot of them have different religions within the, the Islamic faith. And, and obviously, you know, if you've got someone who's invested in the region, generally they're from there. And, you know, I don't think it was um, uh, emphasised on them enough that collectively they are one country. That, and I don't think that that's how they see themselves. They see them as Sunnis and Shiites or... or Very tribal. Another, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that valley's got a different... Um, opinion on on what 
the governance of the area should be than this drive. And it's, yeah, and it's difficult. It's really hard to, to try and relay that coming from outside. It has to be internally based to, to try and change the way they think about themselves and their own country. So it is tricky, but, um, you know, we were trying to do the best with what we could and, and with the time that we had. So, um, and that was, um, yeah, just one of those things. So the, but they, you know, they, they were, they were good. Like we didn't have any problems with them. They, they didn't have any problems with us. Not that I know of, but, um, that you yeah, just got along together. And, and when we, um, well, I didn't have to get, we, or we got shot at once, but it was, um, sort of a, a pot shot and that was about it. So it didn't, didn't really eventuate to a, a gun battle or anything like that. Like Dan Kieran's, um, day. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things that you're, you're worried that that might happen and, and um, their ability to, to face uh, up to the adversity or the challenge of that um, might not be enough, which is sometimes, um, yeah, what you think about. But I guess that that's just the way, way it is and you can't always have um, you know, the perfect soldiers around you all the time. So you're mentioning that they were getting complacent. In a way, um, but only very briefly. Like they, they just wouldn't search. You know, they had they only had one metal detector for like 30 dudes, whereas we'd have a metal detector for every two guys. Mm-hmm. And generally the engineers would be the specialists, whereas they don't have engineers, they have soldiers. Or they, they would have an engineer, but they wouldn't have them in search, uh, trained as, in search as well as us. And we'd do our best to try and train them. And then we, you know, we spent millions and millions of dollars and of time and, and resources and equipment trying to train these guys and, you know, the, the attrition rate and, and the, the, I think, you know, they'd been at war for so long. So you know, it can only go until they get tired or, you know, just, just want to have a break, you know, and, and that's probably not an option for them. It's not like they can just leave and go to, I don't know, Port Macquarie or something like that for a break, you know, or wherever, you know, it's, it doesn't matter where it is, but um, yeah, they can't really get away from what, what the, their country is. So, okay. So your normal day to day would be going out searching for this um, disembarking from the, from the vehicles, yeah. um, armored vehicles on foot searching. How did the, how was the 23rd of August different? Yeah, so we were on a, a clearance patrol. So we were um, going out and searching for like cache weapons and IEDs. And it's a bit different because we were not really on, on a big road. We, oh, we were in a, in a part, but for most of it, we're searching an area, which is a little bit different. So we're clearing the area rather than going along a route, route patrol, um, hence the name. And this one here, we were going up and establishing this checkpoint. And um, we sort of moved in and we started to realize there was a lot of IED activity around. There was lots of blast craters, there was vehicle wreckage. Um, we started to find a few IEDs and, and the process and the time and that took would be, you know, it would be like six hours just to clear one IED because um, the, the uh, explosive ordnance disposal team, which was in the quick reaction force, so the QRF, they were based at a, on, on a little patrol base and they were a resource that had to um, be required for like four different patrol, three different patrols going on. So they couldn't be with us all the time. So we would, you know, find an ID and have to wait for them to come out to us and then clear the ID and then they go back to base 
and then we'd go forward 100 metres and we'd find another one and then they'd have to come back out. So it was just a bit of a, so for two days we had that, um, we'd find, you know, an IED every sort of three or 400 metres. Um, and the process of finding an IED is something I should maybe break down because it sort of highlights the dangers of what we're in. So we're walking along, you know, you could be walking along, you know, bloody surface paradise beach, the sand's sort of similar in places like that and you're waving a metal detector. You can't tell what's in front of you, what's under the sand. You're waving along and then you've got a metal hit and you're like, oh yeah, there's, maybe there's something there. So you get down in your belly and so you get a paintbrush out and you sweep away the, the top of the, the, the dirt and you see, oh yeah, there's something there. So you stand up, mark it out, and then you search around the sides to, to see if there's other sort of parts of the ID or another piece or another even ID that could be around. And that starts to build you a picture of what this ID could be. And then um, then you take photos of it and then you move back to the vehicle and then you call up the, the QRF or the, the, the EOD teams. They come out in bomb suits and get paid more than us. So they, they then deal with it. Um, they either blow it in place or they pull it out of the ground or they disarm it, um, that being the most dangerous. But for most instances, they just blow it out of the ground. It's the fastest way and then we can move on. So then they go back and then we just push on and then we go up and clear it and, and then move on. So, um, and that's, that's sort of the, the process. So you generally, you're touching the IED before we even realize it's an IED. So you've got obviously a, a sense that it's something dangerous there because it's oh buried goodness. in the ground and it's like a, an object that doesn't seem right. And you, know, you can sort of get the gist that there's something there that shouldn't be there because you know, it might be just a little bit lightly, not light sand. It's, it's a you know, good, good centimeter or two of sand or dirt over top. And you're like, oh, that's, that's obviously been planted there. And that could have been there for two years or it could have been there for two minutes. Like it's just one of those things. So obviously you're gonna see something that's just been buried very easily, but after weeks of baked sun and dirt and maybe a wind, wind and maybe a little bit of rain as well. But yeah, it's just all that sort of thing. So as we moved in, we started to realize that the actual patrol was gonna blow out massively and it took us until like third day to finally get up on top of the checkpoint uh, that we we're heading to um, mainly because you know the IED um, danger and, and how long it was taking us to search uh, to clear these IEDs so we could move on do you get used to it so when mm. you so uh, I mean the first time that you do it your heart rate's probably doing 200 and you're freaking out and sweating bullets do you get to the point mm. where it's sort of run of the mill um, oh, I, I would imagine it would like, I, I never, me personally, I never found an ID myself. I found other componentry and things like that, um, and rockets and all that sort of thing. But the, the, the other guys in my team, they're the ones who found the IDs. I was on the path towards it and they were in a sort of a different role bouncing around the side and they'd see it. And cause of their sort of free freedom to move, cause they had a different sort of line. I was on the predicted path of travel so that's generally where I was sort of positioned and they would bounce in they're like oh there's an ID they're going to bounce in so they'd go in and find it before I'd even get there so um and I imagine that it might but you'd have to do a lot of it I think yeah you, yeah like quite a lot you'd probably you know 10 to 20 IDs sort of feeling um but you know we were only on our third or fourth IED um, in that time and I actually would have been like four or five, but yeah. And that was just the way 
the way it sort of is and you sort of move on you know your role you know the the process and by the time we got up onto the checkpoint the eod team were like oh you guys are finding a lot of ieds we're going to stay with you and that was on like the third third day i think it was the third day or later in the second day so that was you know, nice that the commanders were sort of talking and making sure that the resources were where they needed to be because the other the other patrols weren't weren't finding um, the any IEDs at the time and we were finding a lot of them. Um, and then when we got up onto the top of the checkpoint, we then realised that the the insurgents had sort of sprinkled metal everywhere and pushed over all the sandbags and and made a bit of a mess of the places uh, place. So um, it took a bit of time to sort of re-establish a bit of secure. Um, sort of protection. Yeah, 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 and, and the yeah the protective measures around the place um, were were sort of back in back in, but there was a lot of rocks as well, so we're using sort of natural natural protection as well. So that was was good, but um, uh, and then on it was on the third day we were trying to get up on top of the checkpoint. We realised there was this huge boulder blocking the main road, and um, the the. the we knew the Afghan forces that were with us, we knew they were going to want to, to use this. So we needed to clear this boulder. So on the fourth day, we got approval to explosively remove this large boulder. So by putting some explosives on it, maybe break, it was massive. It's probably the size of a, like a Volkswagen Golf. And um, so put some explosives on it and break it in two or three or whatever, and then just push it to the side or push it down the hill. But, and um, because it was so big, we couldn't move it. Um, and that was, you know, obviously, just one of the roles that we can do because we, we carry explosives with us. And um, we were very, it was very hard, hot work. It was probably 40 odd degrees or 35 to 40 degrees, about 3000 meters above sea level, carrying about 20 kilos with the kit. Um, because we had vehicles with us, we didn't have to carry our packs, which was nice, but um, we still, you know, body armor, water, metal detector, batteries, rifle, ammunition, helmet, yeah, radios. A lot of stuff that we're carrying and um i and we we're working about 14 hours a day so it was a it's a big 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 job and um i got a bit confused about what boulder because we were using like another little sort of road along the side and that also had a boulder blocking it that vehicles couldn't use so i was i was like oh, cool. i'll just go check this out and then my mate pitch came over to me i'm sitting there waiting and he's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, isn't this the body? He's like, no, no, it's, it's the other one. I was like, oh, yeah, of course, idiot. So I pick up my stuff, and we'd already searched across sort of the main thoroughfare of the, the checkpoint, and I was walking along this path, and then that's when it happened. I just, yeah, like, don't remember the blast. I don't remember the bang, my metal detector being sort of shattered. I wasn't searching at the time, so it was all packed up. My rifle was in my right hand, getting hand and getting uh, snapped in half and flown off to the right. And um, I don't know if I did cartwheels through the air or not, but um, what I do remember is sort of opening my eyes from the flat of my back, looking up at the sky. It's about 11 o'clock in the morning, clear blue sky, and it's dark and it's really dusty and it's really quiet. And I'm sort of dazed and confused about what the hell has just happened. Like I was just walking and now I'm on my back. What, what the hell? I didn't have any pain at the stage. And I sort of, sort of, and the rocks and debris sort of start clearing and the, the sky comes out. And I get up on my elbows and I sort of look around and then I realise what's happened. I can see the blast crater next to me. I can see bits of debris of my metal detector and my rifle and my kit all over the ground. And I can see my, my legs just gushing blood and they're, they're missing. So they're like gone. And uh, they're, they're not like hanging off to the side or anything like that. They're just gone. And I 
yeah, and then I sort of knew uh, what, what had happened and I'd stepped on uh, a little, a small IED, thankfully, because the ones we were finding were really big. Um, and that's when the pain hit me, like an absolute freight train. Um, I, I just remember like my body, not just my legs were sore, like my arms, my face, my back, my chest, everything about my body was so sore um, and excruciating pain. And um, I yeah, tried to stop the bleeding with my, my hands and then realized I needed a tourniquet. So I started, we had tourniquets on our body armor and I started to rip it off. And every time I got up on my, off my elbows, I kept falling backwards. So I couldn't get the, the tourniquet on. Um, and then I remember Pitch being my mate Pitch who came over and got me, uh, had come over. He was about 10 meters away from me, thankfully, because um, otherwise he would have been injured as well. And he was uninjured. Um, well, I say uninjured, he had a, a bit of cuts on his face and had some hard time hearing. Um, but other than that, he was uninjured. And um, he, I yelled, I could hear him off to my right hand side, and I yelled at him to come over and get my tourniquets on. And he came like straight in next to me and started putting on the first tourniquet and then got the second one on. Now, I remember in the, in the process of trying to stop the bleeding with my hands, I grabbed my right leg because that was the one that was in most pain. And it, it, I'd had, I've got a really, I had a really large wound at the back of my leg, um, all the way pretty much to my butt cheek. Um, and I grabbed it and I could feel my bone, my femur in my, my thigh. And um, I, yeah, I knew I was in pretty bad shape. And um, by the time Pitch had got the, the tourniquets on, uh, the rest of the patrol that was waiting down, or the, the, the sort of the engineer group, were waiting down at the, the, the boulder where I should have been got to me and um you know they're they're sort of coming across the scene of their their mate um laying on the ground who's missing their legs and um yeah gonna probably probably bleed out and die um so it was a bit of a a shocking sort of moment for everyone involved and i like to point that out because the trauma that i was going through became their trauma you know, it, it wasn't just my trauma there was a lot of people um getting affected by what they were seeing, what they were hearing, what they were smelling and, and, and all that. And that's just, you know, part of the reasons why so many people uh, come back from Afghanistan uninjured, but, uh, you know, uh, injured in their own way yeah. um, or not physically injured. So um, I was also the, the combat first aider for my team. So I wasn't a medic. I was sort of the unofficial medic for my, my squad. And I knew basic first aid, life-saving measures, sort of tourniquets. I knew how to put an IV um, line in. I knew how to do um, like a, a sucking chest wound um, sort of treatment, some morphine, things like that. Just a little bit higher care than what we get um, uh, in our basic first aid courses, but I, I was by no, no way a medic. Um, and I, I wanted to um, tell the guys that I needed help. I could feel myself going into to shock. I said, you guys are going to have to get out the, the IV um, kit, which they did and just shit went everywhere. It was a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a uh, sort of a, what we call a kit explosion. So just shit went everywhere. Um, <laughs> but they were, you know, they were rushing and, and frantic and as you would, and it was you know, rightly so. Um, they, they were working pretty hard and, and given the stress and the, the, the situation, um, stuff was going everywhere. Um, 
And as they were sort of getting all that ready, one of the other combat first aiders from where the vehicles were all parked up and what we call a harbour, sort of a safe area, um, he came in and took over the the uh, the IV process, thankfully, because it's quite a tricky thing to do, um, given the situation. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, in that time, the guys sort of stood up that were, were with me, the engineers, and they were like, what, what do we do now? What do we do now? I said, oh, you know, some morphine would be pretty good, eh? So um, <laughs> they uh, they started to get all that ready and I was telling them, like, how to do it and how much to give me because that can be a little bit fatal as well. Not that we were carrying enough to do that, but, you know, we we're always warned, you know, you can't give too much morphine, blah, 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 which is, you know, yes, in a hospital situation, but not really in a, a combat trauma situation when the pain out of 10 is 1,000. And, um, yeah, so they got that into me and... They bundled me up, getting ready, me ready to, to – they're going to carry me on a stretcher and they put me onto a stretcher. And I was being a pain in the ass, making sure the tourniquets were staying tight and the bandages were on properly and um, doing all these weird things that, you know, you'd think you know, I wasn't capable of doing and I think I was just trying to keep myself busy, um, not worrying about how bad I was in, how bad a shape I was in. Um, and they started carrying me about five or 600 metres to where the vehicles were in their harbour and – and I, I obviously looked around me. I could see the guys were in a pretty sort of um, traumatic shape, um, I mm. should say. And they, I, I said to them, you know, guys, I'll be fine. It'll be, it'll be all good. Like, you know, I'll just, you know, I'll go to the Paralympics or something. And, um, and they're like, man, that's a bit weird thing to say. But anyway, um, yeah. And, and, and the reason why I said it is, as I said before, the trauma that I was going through was not just my trauma, it was theirs as well. And and that was something that I was sort of aware of. And, and if I could say or do something that would hopefully help them um, to ease their mind, to, to think that I'd be okay, is, is um, I was going to do it. And, that, and that's the reason why I said what I said. Um, yeah, and then, then they carried me along and, and laid me down and next to the, uh, the vehicles and, and not until this point did I think I was going to die. Like something was always improving, something was always um, getting better or there was treatment or something happening. And that sort of gave me the sense that I was going to be okay. But then there was nothing more to do. We just had to stop and wait and wait for the helicopters to come. And I was a fair way out from, I think we were the, the furthest away patrol operating from Tarrantcout and our medical um, facility. Um, in Australia for the Australians so that was really a, a long wait oh, it felt like forever but it was probably only um, like 25 minutes 30 minute wait for the helicopters because we were so far out our radio signals didn't have enough power to get to town count so I had to be relayed through another base oh my and why didn't so you go to the you didn't go to the American bases for treatment we were still too far away. Oh, yeah, okay. We, we were we were very remote. Um, we did we had American um, helicopters and, and you know, American forces around, um, but they they were they were otherwise occupied. So, um, but yeah, the, the the American choppers were, were on their way to me. I had an uh, an Australian um, uh, special forces medic on that helicopter. Um, but sorry, I should go back. But yeah, and it was whilst waiting for that helicopter that, that I thought I was going to die, and I um, started to get really worried, and um, you know was was 
concerned. You know, obviously, everyone was concerned. That I was having a bit of a, a good old cry and, um, you know, not wanting, saying I didn't want to die here. And um, and then I remembered that I'd written all these letters on my laptop, uh, letters to my, my family and my girlfriend and some friends that, um, you know, death letters to say I wasn't going to be coming home. And and uh, I remember pulling pitch in and I was like, mate, you're going to have to go onto my laptop and, and print off those letters and send them to to whoever they're addressed to. And, um, yeah, so it was a very difficult um, thing for me to ask pitch to do because I felt like that was a a burden heavier than, than anything else I'd ask anyone to do in my life. So it was, yeah, really, really tricky to do. But having to go through that, the, the bloody choppers rock up like two minutes after um, saying that and they come in and, and the boys sort of pick me up and anyone who's been around a helicopter knows you can't really talk around them. So there was no goodbyes. There was no, um, you know, I'll see you, see you when you get home or anything like that. And I, um, you yeah, know, slid onto the chopper and they closed the door and took off and yeah, there was no goodbye. So it was just like, well, hopefully I'll see you again. And, you know, they still had a job to do. They still had a patrol to finish. And despite what had just all happened, it was, it was pretty crazy to think that they, still had all that to go and um, you know, still had another three months of their deployment to go um, after doing and going through all that. So um, flown into um, Tarrant and got treated, sort of put to sleep straight away um, and uh, did some surgery there. And then I got bounced from there to, to Kandahar Air Force Base. Um, treated there, I wasn't woken up. I don't remember that part of my journey at all. And then I woke up. Um, up Bagram Air Base, which is where the US medical uh, evacuation planes leave out of Afghanistan, or, or for this time it was. And um, I, I remember being put onto this plane and I, I woke up sort of maybe an hour before we, we were loaded onto the plane. And I remember getting on the plane and there was like two, uh, obviously two sides of the plane, but um, there was double stacked um laying wounded on one side and then on the other side there was seated wounded and I thought I was in pretty bad shape but there was two guys up or oh, two people up the front of the plane having surgery on the flight which sort of blew me away that um the cost of the conflict in Afghanistan was was much more than I realized and I was you know there and a part of that that situation it was um and it was just one of those things that I was like this is downright shocking but um the other shocking thing from on that flight was that i was the only non-american they were all american on the on the plane and you know that like i was saying like the cost of that war was so massive that we had no idea and we were there and a part of it let alone back here in australia who sort of you feel so removed from it it is like a different world it's a different planet and, and almost a different life and, and it was yeah really Really strange. Um, I um, land. We, we were flying to uh, Landstuhl Hospital in, in Ramstein Air Base, which is in Germany, a big NATO or Amer American NATO base in uh, near Frankfurt. And uh, I was put into ICU for a couple of days there. Uh, my parents were flying over to me, and um, they, I was made ready to fly home uh, to Australia. Obviously, the long distance was was going to be a bit of a try. You know, tricky thing so they they um, flew over a medical transfer team um, from from Australia and um, got me ready to fly home uh, with some surgery uh, there and 
I remember jumping on a, the, the plane and um, on an Emirates pl- flight, they sort of flew me civilian back to Australia um, and made very comfortable. I was put in like first class and all that sort of stuff, but I, yeah, I don't recommend stepping on an IED to, to get an upgrade, but um, it, was a, it was nice and comfy to, to, get, to get home and um, that's where I, I met Rachel. Uh, my, my my girlfriend at the time and now my wife um, at, at the plane door and, and that was a, an interesting sort of reunion. Um, I felt like I had let her down. Um, I felt like I'd made our predictory expected life so much more tricky, uh, so much more difficult and um, it was mainly my fault you know, in a way and um, she was very loving and caring and endearing in that moment and and made me feel like i i didn't it wasn't just my fault it was it was so many other um elements to the the reasons why it happened and, and what 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 sort of played out did you yeah. have an opportunity to before your parents flew out did you have an opportunity to contact your family at all yeah i am um, Apparently, I, I, I don't remember too much because my the, the amount of morphine and painkillers I was on yeah. sort of makes it very hazy. Yeah. Apparently, I called my mum and said I was all right after one of my surgeries. Um, anyone who's come out of surgery knows that it's a bit hazy anyway, so I don't know yeah. why they let me call. But, um, yeah, I, I remember calling well, I don't remember, but apparently I called my, my mum and said I was all right and I've just come out of surgery and I'll see you soon and stuff like that. Um, and then a couple of days later, I remember calling um, Rachel after a surgery as well. And um, I remember, I think I, I wrote like a, a Facebook post to her, like on her page, it was obviously quite open and everyone could see it, uh, that I'd, I'd call her soon. I'm just going to have a nap. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she, she wasn't too impressed on that. that but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was a bit out of out it. Of it. But, yeah, at the same time, yeah, I called her and told her I was all right and she was, she was happy to hear from me and I was happy to hear from her. How Talk me through sort of that rehab process because you had a bit of an unusual rehab in terms of it was fairly speedy in terms of what you got to. Yeah, yeah, it, it was fairly speedy. I, I guess it was because I was quite fit. You know, I had a... I was very active. I did a lot of fitness um, in in my time in the military. Was sport was always something, and, and when even when I was in Afghanistan working in those conditions, you, you get fitter and fitter. But even when we had time off, I was you know in the gym and, and running and lights for stuff. So I was incredibly fit, and I think that helps um, recover every every injury um, the, or, or surgery or, or you know reconstruction. If you're fit, you you recover so much faster and. Um, I, I was healing much faster than what the doctors were expecting, um, and what I, you know, I was sort of just doing my thing and, and hoping everything was going well. Um, and then they transferred me from the Royal Brisbane over to uh, Greenslopes, where I sort of started the, the extended rehabilitation phase of, of my hospital time, um, and that was sort of doing a lot of physio. Started doing um, about, you know, I remember in the, in the first physio session I did was probably only, I don't know, like 10 minutes, if that. 
and I'd sort of had enough. And then by the time I'd finished in, in hospital, I was doing about nine or 10 hours a day just because there was nothing else to do. And I wanted to be strong as I could so I could get my prosthetic legs because I was using lots of different um, uh, muscles to, to, to move um, now. And, um, you know, I don't have the big hamstring in the back of my thigh anymore. I've just got a little piece there and I don't have a calf muscle that controls like the bend of the knee very well. And so I needed to make sure um, we're really strong and, and, and things. So I was healing well and then flew down to Sydney, got fitted for prosthetics. And then I got to meet the, the guys at the, the plane door when they got home three months later. And then, um, uh, which was really cool, a really nice reunion. And then, um, I, and then I sort of started the sort of rehab, the recovery rehab phase that took like a year. And that was just doing swimming. It was lots of walking, um, a bit of time in the gym. And it was very much uh, monotonous. It was very monotonous. So I just remember feeling sort of like, you know, this is really boring. I'm not really aiming for anything other than to improve what I've got. And yeah, it was just sort of a weird sort of grind, monotonous, mundane thing that I was doing. And then I got the opportunity to um, go to this thing called the Marine Trial Games um, over in San Diego or Camp Pendleton near San Diego, um, which is like a wounded um, soldier sporting event, similar to um, the um, the Invictus Games didn't exist, but the these games um, are a trial event to the Wounded Warrior Games, which is what Prince Harry went and saw mm. that year in 2013 and said, we need to make this global. We need to make this like a, a bigger thing because the power of sport to aid rehabilitation recovery for wounded, injured, and ill servicemen and women and you know, veterans was... It, it's life-changing and it gives sort of meaning and purpose and balance and, and motivation to a, to a soldier that that they otherwise wouldn't have. And I think that's what helped me um, see the opportunity in myself to potentially go to the Paralympics. You know, it was not not at this stage, but it was just that moment where I was like, man, I could actually might, might enjoy, might find a sport that I could really pursue and, and make myself you know, feel like I'm, um able I, I'm, mm. I'm i'm i have the ability to do it regardless of if i'm missing some limbs or not and it was great to see other athletes or other soldiers there that had been through similar things as myself and how they were getting around what sort of prosthetics they were using how they were walking what they found difficult what they didn't and all these tips and tricks that you know i'd never seen before no one had ever told ever told me i met one guy damien tomlinson um, and he he was doing a lot of different things. He was sort of way more advanced than me, sort of a little bit older and been injured for a lot longer than I had. And he was sort of doing the things way down the track and I just couldn't quite see myself there yet. It was just a bit too too far away. So when, when I got to see these guys and girls doing their thing, um, sort of in a not quite a similar situation, but just close to it, it was really sort of empowering and it was really special. So... Um, yeah, come back and then got involved with the, the Mates for Mates Veterans Charity here in Brisbane. Yeah. And um, we did a big paddle from Sydney to, to Brisbane um, to raise awareness and some funds for the organisation and, and help people like myself um, you know, find a purpose and, and find something good in themselves and, and, and whatever else. So, and that was, that was sort of my beginning of like, man, 
I paddled a thousand kilometers and I still quite enjoy it. So maybe I might do this as a sport. So I um, yeah, picked up the paddle at the, right at the end of 2013 um, for the high performance side of things, which was really um, a really cool journey. Why yeah. canoeing? Because I remember canoes being these school camps, these really mm. chunky red and orange things that you sort of, you know, lumber around in and it's great fun. But the ones that you're using in the photos to an untrained eye almost look like a kayak. What's the what's the difference between the two and why yeah. did you end up doing canoeing? So the sport as a whole, so that incorporates kayaking, is called canoeing. And I, 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 I could be wrong here, but I think it's because globally we believe that canoeing was the first of the, the paddle-powered crafts, I right. think. I could be very wrong there, but that's my assumption. Anyway, um, as a whole, it's called International Canoeing Federation. That's the, the global um, governing body. But then there's other, you know, sports within it. There's um, kayak surfing. There's um, wild water. There's rafting. There's um, canoe. There's um, kayaking. There's slalom. There's there's freestyle. There's so many different and, and all these different like in free free boating and stuff like that. So, and then sea kayaking is what everyone's probably seen before and, and you know school camp canoeing these big wide things with single blades so i do two boats um and originally i started out in a canoe so i did an outrigger canoe so that's got a little float thing on the side nice and stable it's got no rudder so you have to steer it with the paddle um, which is harder than it looks um much harder and i had a lot of trouble in the first sort of couple months trying to go on a straight line um and fell out of the boat a lot and things like that so it's just one of those learning curves and but i'd committed myself to it and i sort of picked it up and got i had an amazing coach of andrew wood and, and she um helped me sort of figure out how to do it all and then um i had some good athletes around me that were um you know also doing the same thing i got to learn off them too which was cool um yeah it was the reason why i picked kayaking canoeing um so i i grew up in queenstown in new zealand and one of my subjects at school was outdoor recreation and i did kayaking whitewater kayaking there and really loved it and felt like it was something that if i had the opportunity to do again i'd do it and when it came up as a potential paralympic sport i was like you beauty i'm, I'm that's where i'm heading yeah what was the path to the Paralympics because it's obviously a training component. You don't just show up and be like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my average sort of day now, uh, well, not now, but as, a, as an athlete was, um, you know, wake up pretty early, <coughs> excuse me, on the water at 6 or 5.30, depending on if it's summer or winter, um, paddle for about an hour, um, jump off the water um, and chill out and then go uh, eat some food then go to the gym. Um, for about an hour, hour and a half, depending on what the, the session is. And then after that, um, sort of relax for the rest of the day. I might, you know, do a podcast or some speaking or things like that or, or whatever else i got going on. Um, and then in the afternoon, we'd probably go for another paddle or or it would be rest, depending on what the, the cycle of the of the, the training environment, um, training cycle is like. Or, if, you know, if there's a storm and things like that and weather dictates. Um, and, and that's sort of day on day out, you do that six days a week. Um, not quite the gym, you do gym three to four times a week, but yeah, it was just a, um, a very 
hard learning curve just to jump in that athlete environment that you know you you rock up to training and then like looking back now look you're trying to be better than you were the day before and or, or the session before that's the same and then that's a really difficult thing to do day on day out you you have to push yourself you're working hard you're sweating you're making yourself sore you're making yourself tired and and you sacrifice quite a lot you know you, you you're not avoid but you, you you compromise and don't go out drinking or, or hanging out with your mates as much because you know in the morning you need to be on on, on your game and, and working hard and poor rachel yeah yeah well, <laughs> funny thing was is that we were doing long distance so she was in new zealand working away at a medical degree so it allowed me to do my thing and allowed her to do her thing and we got you know sort of the benefits of of that isolated focused sort of learning slash um work so um it was was a yeah a difficult time but you know in itself was you know sort of a, a blessing in disguise what was more emotional for you the opening ceremony realizing that you got to the paralympics or actually standing on the podium and um oh, i wouldn't say the opening the opening ceremony was pretty cool it was just sort of a big fanfare type thing um and, and whatnot but the the most emotional thing was not the podium either it was actually crossing the finish line yeah um in first place at, at the games and, and in the final that that was the moment where i was like thank, excuse my french but thank fuck that's over like it was really not like, i've done it yeah yeah in, fuck, in a way in a way but i didn't feel much pressure but there was heaps there and i didn't feel it until i crossed that line and it just came across me and it was just like boom like you you've done it you've achieved it all and here's all the feeling that you should have felt that you were able to shelf for some, for some reason. And I didn't realize I was, I wasn't aware that I was sort of putting it to the side and then it just came over me like a wave. It was this huge wave of relief that I set the goal. I had all these people and, and, and friends and family that helped me get there. And in part, I did it for them as well. And I, and the, the pressure of that, that actual statement dawned on me when I crossed that line and I, and I'd done it and I'd won. And I was like, this is, yeah, this is an amazing sort of moment. And I didn't cry, but it was just in a moment where I was like, this is, this is something that I'm incredibly proud of and incredibly blessed. And I'm not a very religious person, but I was incredibly blessed with the people that were around me during the, the last four years. And yeah, and it was all because of them and, and, you know, my, them helping me see what I was capable of and allowing me to, to push myself and, and enabling me to, to get there. So it was a, a very, yeah, cool moment. Invictus Games before or after you did the Olympics? So I did the Invictus Games in 2014. I was the captain, so that was two years before. And then I did it again in... 2016 which was the second one that was in orlando and that was just before world championships so i flew from like orlando over to, to germany for world championships and then came home um and then i did at my last invictus games as an athlete in 2017 in toronto um, and that was a it was a really cool one because i got to do a sport that i hadn't had the opportunity to do because i was too worried about hurting myself and that was wheelchair rugby 
um, and, I, and it was so much fun. And I don't actually classify for wheelchair rugby at Paralympic level, so uh, it was cool that I got to do How it. How do you not classify? So you need three limbs affected minimum to be a, a wheelchair rugby player. And, and the reason why that is is wheelchair rugby um, is actually a sport that's come from wheelchair basketball, and it was right. for the, the quad quadriplegic players of basketball that just couldn't quite keep up um, with the basketball because there's a bit more ability. The, the classification of basketball is very wide, um, whereas in rugby it, it gets quite narrow, which means um, it means it's more fair. You know, that you're not getting you know tailed up by by all these different people. And, and I'm lucky because in my sport, in Paracanoe, I'm in the middle classification, which means I have I have brackets on my disability, whereas on the left or right, um, the, the classes either side of mine, they have a bit more scope to have different disabilities in them. And, and that makes it a little bit, you could say unfair, but it's you, know, you have to start somewhere. And, and that's just the, the nature of Paralympic sport. With the Olympics, obviously that's the pinnacle, I would say, mm-hmm. in terms of the sport. But what was it, given the Invictus Games is all vets, what was, yeah. how was the energy different? So, yeah, you're right. The, 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 difference, the difference is really big and, and it might not seem obvious to someone who's not been to both. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm in a fortunate position to say that. But the, the focus on the Paralympics is it being about the best, the strongest, the fastest, the whatever it is. Um, and whereas, and that's great. And then it's all about human endeavor to be the best. But the Invictus Games is about empowering recovery and rehabilitation through sport. So it doesn't matter if you're first, last, second, fourth or 17th as long as you're going and giving it a go. And that was the main thing. And there's a lot of sort of um, examples of, of that, of like encouraging each other. And, and like I had when I went to, to the Marine trial games and seeing other people who had been through um, similar situations and coming together with like-minded people who had been through same, this, like, similar situations and doing things together and and that was something that was um, clearly evident in the Invictus sort of um, path. So Invictus means unconquered and it's a Latin word so that's sort of like where that comes from and and that's sort of the the feeling that people get when they when they leave the Invictus games or or spectate and even just see it is quite empowering and and moving. Now I wasn't going to touch on this and you can not answer it but you did touch on the cost of the war Given the events that took place, thoughts about the exit? Um, I wasn't surprised by the event. I was surprised by the speed in which it happened. Yeah. And, and that's mainly because of my comments before about them, the, the, the Afghan security forces not really being invested in their own location. And when they are, they're generally targeted by the insurgents. They sort of got to get identified very early and it makes it very tricky for them to have a really um, long lasting legacy of, you know, safety and security. Um, and it was, you know, it was heartbreaking to see, you know, what that meant for the people of Afghanistan as well through the news pictures and, and you know, the, the scenes at the airport and outside the gates and all that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I, I had a few emails from people from Afghanistan that had tracked me down and was asking for assistance. And, and I, I'm not in a position, I can't help yeah. in that situation. I, I feel 
devastated for them. Um, and it's just a really unfortunate situation. But I think um, I think currently, right as we speak right now, there's, there's a, some um, uh, negotiations and some, some talks happening between some security forces and the Taliban in Norway or something like that, or Sweden. So I hope that, you know, there's some dialogue there to establish some safe and secure place for people that, that you know, maybe don't want to be in Afghanistan anymore or under, under the Taliban rule. But you know, I just hope that they, they can find a peaceful resolution. And it's just really difficult to sit here and, in, in beautiful Brisbane and Australia and, and, and sort of say that. But, you know, there's no, I've, I've, I believe I tried. And, and I think mm. a lot of people can feel the same way. And I, there was a lot of sort of angst um, when it first happened. You know, there were sort of two sides to, th- to, to the veteran community about their contributions to Afghanistan. And the big question is, was it worth it? And yeah. I, I have had almost 10 years to process, was it worth going there? And I started that that pathway and that answering that question in, in, on like the 23rd of August, 2012, whereas other veterans had that happen in September of 2021. And, and that was a very abrupt and out of their control. And, and mine was out of my control as well, but I've had a lot of time to process it. And I'm, I'm 100% okay to say that I went there and, did the job I did and was was happy with my contribution to try and make it a safe and secure place. And you know, I have to leave it at that. You know, we weren't there to stop it as that was happening in September, but, you know, we, we were there for long enough to create an opportunity for a generation of Afghani children, especially the, the girls over there, to, to have an education, to, an opportunity to see hopefully a dem- democratic process of, of their country to have a safe and peaceful um, you know, place to live. I just hope that that filters down, you know. As a civilian, um, completely non-connected to the armed force, I don't have any family members that have served apart from grandparents and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to America where they're very uh, supportive and openly very rah, rah, rah in regards to their armed forces, I don't feel that we are in terms of Australia. I personally as a fil- c- civilian don't think we support veterans enough what yeah. are your thoughts but i'm not also ta- i'm not also tapped into the yeah, services yeah. and stuff there's certainly obviously certain elements could be done better um I, it's very difficult um for a lot of people that come out of the military and this is what we're starting to hear uh, um a lot of at the moment um in, in with the veterans suicide cases there's a bit of a disconnect from when people were in the military to when they leave because we're, we're sort of institutionalised and supported in order to achieve our, our goals together. And then all of a sudden you're out of the military, you're out of that, that surrounds, you're out of that environment and you're out away from those people that are jointly connected through your, uh, through the, the military to achieve something. And, and you're you're out. You, you you've sort of lost that connection, and, and it, it's quite isolating. And the same thing happens to athletes when they leave their sport. They feel sort of disconnect because they don't have that routine. They don't have that that team sort of nature around them, and that's pretty difficult to comprehend because you know being humans, we are you know, social creatures that re- quite almost not rely, but we thrive when we're together and work towards something. And that's that's something that just it's not it wasn't quite 
apparent until we started to figure out that okay, people were having trouble, you know, late after the, their time in the military, and that's that's been hard. So that support for myself has been very very good. Um, obviously, I've had a bit of a profile that's allowed me to be quite visible and. I do get a lot of people saying, you know, thank you for your service and all sort of thing. And, and a lot of people, you know, will sit at home or you walk past the street, you won't have any idea that they served or has sacrificed so much um, throughout their life and, you know, may have you know, given their entire youth to, to the military that, you know, that, that might not come as a um, as, as obvious as, as maybe myself walking down the street without legs. Um, but, you know, I... I feel that it's it's changing. You know, obviously the the Australian War Memorial and, and um, Dr. Brendan Nelson, who was the previous um, director of the War Memorial, um, sort of started to celebrate what we'd achieved as a nation and how we've supported other nations and, and helped them secure um, you know, a life or, or a country for themselves. And and that was, I think, that's something that um, the War Memorial. If you ever get a chance to go to Canberra, everyone should have to have to go there in their life and just to see the the names on the wall and the, the Hall of Remembrance and um, you know the, the the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and all the other you know stories and, and things in there that sort of culminated our contribution to a, a hopeful, peaceful and prosperous world that we live. But uh, as we sit here and um, do this, there's a, a number of people that are suffering and they just need you know, to know that people aren't going to judge them for what is perceived in themselves as weakness is, you know, them just processing um, some trauma of the past. And and I think that's really important to, to let people know that it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to, to come out and, and, and be, um, to to realize that you need help. And and that's, that's, um, I think it just, you know, for anyone, it's not, not just the military people, there's, you know, emergency services, you know, anyone who's dealing with mental health is, is, is it's very difficult. And I've been lucky because, you know, I, I found something that I loved and enjoyed and was supported with and was happy to, to, to throw myself at. And that's that, I think that's helped me avoid um, my mental health, any mental health issues. So, but that's just my example. Did you find writing your book cathartic? Um, yeah, no, I, I quite liked, um, I think that my favourite part of doing the book was was remembering like childhood stories that I'd forgotten about. And, and as I was doing it through through sort of chronological order, I was able to sort of like remember funny little things that I'd forgotten um, of the past. And then obviously um, being, and then going through all the military stuff and, talking to my mates that were with me in Afghanistan and, and wherever else I deployed um, and asking them about, you know, facts that I remember one way, but this is completely opposite and things like that. So that was, it was quite fun. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a cool process, I reckon. Where can people find your, your book now? Is it on yes, all Amazon yes, and stuff like that? Yeah, it's on Amazon and Booktopia. It's in the you know, bookstores, um, Demix and QBD and it's on Audible as well. You can get it on Kindle. Um, I still got an email alert the other day. You can you can buy it in Canada in, in April and things like that. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. So, I'm, so it's I'm Blood, Sweat it. and Steel. Did you? Is it on um, audiobook? It is. Yeah, it audiobook is on audiobook and Apple Books and things yeah. like that. So did yeah. you narrate it? 
I did not. I'm I, I, the publisher <laughs> asked me, she, her name's Jude, and she's like, Oh, did you want to read it? And I was like, How on? It'll take me like four years. So I, I'm a little bit dyslexic, and oh, it would have taken me an absolute headache. So yeah, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's I'm, I'm very proud of it. You also do uh, public speaking, um, corporate mm-hmm. gigs and stuff. How do people get onto you for that? Yeah, so you can just send me an email through my website, and that's um, curtismcgrath.com.au, or, or use my speaking agency uh, that, that I've been using for a while, and that's Saxon Speakers, and, and they'll be able to help you out. So, um, yeah. Perfect. Thanks, Curtis. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 